In his book, The Art of War, Sun Tzu has famously emphasized the importance of knowing your enemy in battle. He writes, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But what should you do if you don't even realize you're in a battle? What good is advice or counsel on waging war if you're unaware or perhaps in denial that there's a fight going on in the first place? Over the past several weeks, we've been considering the, the, the letter of James as a church. Written by the brother of Jesus, James' epistle provides guidance, as I've been teaching, on how to live a positive, joyful, hope-filled life in the midst of a negative and hostile world. It would seem that the congregations to whom James writes in the dispersion were in danger of losing their faith or teetering on the edge of stepping off that narrow path that leads to life and entering the broad path where the crowds are that leads to destruction. So James' occasion for writing is a serious matter. What was tempting these people? What was their difficulty? The letter only gives a few clues, but as I've studied this carefully, it seems to me that the things that James's congregation struggled with is very similar to what we struggle with today. Materialism, self-centeredness, worldliness, lusts of various kinds, following society's patterns instead of following the pattern of Jesus. As a result, their Christian witness had become so dim that their lives were in danger of becoming practically indistinguishable from that of the world around them. Hence the need to know the enemy and to know yourself. In this morning's portion from James, James takes up the topic of your battle against sin, which is the title of my sermon this morning. It's slightly different than what's in the bulletin. And he gives you three crucial insights about your enemy, sin, that you need in order to live this positive, joyful life for God in a hostile world. Let's begin then by reading this morning's scripture portion and praying that God would bless not only the reading, but the preaching of his holy word. This is James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your holy word. It is a, indeed a light in a dark place. It it is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And the unfolding of your word gives light and life. 
So please, Lord, shine your light upon us and even to the darkest recesses of our hearts that we might be illuminated, instructed, encouraged, challenged, and enabled to live lives that are truly joyful and hope-filled in such a sad and confusing world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your battle against sin, first of all, the first crucial insight you need to know in your battle against sin is this. It has a powerful framework. A powerful framework. And I'm using this word framework to evoke the idea of a frame, perhaps around a picture. The frame around a picture kindly borders and supports and highlights the beauty of the art that it contains. My, my stepmom is an artist, and she's always painting uh, pictures of the beautiful Colorado landscape where she lives. She spends a great deal of time and money thinking about the frame for the pictures that she paints. It's amazing that a good frame can really make that, the colors pop in that picture, and a bad one can just, you lose some of the vibrancy and vitality of the artwork. So what's the powerful frame or framework in our text in your battle against sin. It's in verse 12. James begins our passage by describing this framework as he prepares you to think about your struggle with sin. It's a powerful framework because verse 12 centers on or highlights, concentrates in the character and the goodness of God. Look at it again, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, in your battle against sin, God is bounding and bordering and framing all you do, persevering under trial. That's a re repeat of verse 2 of our text with his goodness and his grace, which is also a repeat from something that James has already mentioned. See, God's character, God's goodness, God's generosity, God's promises frame or bound everything we do as we fight against sin. Verse 12 is an interesting verse. It was the last verse in my sermon two weeks ago, verses 9 through 12, and it's the first verse in my sermon this morning. So it has this quality, kind of like a doorway that swings both ways, that concludes the matters that have led up to it and introduces the matters which follow. In verse 12, James mentions steadfastness or endurance, which have already been mentioned in our passage. He mentions testing or being tested. He mentions trials or temptations, all of which have come up before. He also mentions the goodness of God. God has promised to those who love him a reward, verse 12 says. Well, verse 5, we've already heard about God's goodness. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. I think by mentioning the crown of life, which is God's gift, James is evoking the goodness of God, which he's already spent some time explaining, and putting these two things together, the goodness of God in verse 5 and the goodness of God in verse 12, 
I think James is asking you to remember. Remember. Remember as you fight and struggle and battle in this difficult life, God is good. Remember what I told you. God has not left you alone. He hasn't abandoned you. You're not forsaken. Remember, God is generous, big-hearted, and merciful. He's not a fault-finding Scrooge. He's not stingy and mean. He's not just waiting for you to make a mistake and he's going to pounce on you. He's not editing your life with a red pen. God is kind and tender and compassionate. God is near to the brokenhearted. He's, he's ready to help in your hour of need. He's, he's just a prayer away. If any of you lack something, let him ask of God. Just ask. God's answer is absolutely. All this is true, James is saying, but he says more in verse 12 because it introduces what we're about to discuss in terms of your battle against sin. He says it's actually better. Not only is God with you through all of life's hardships and temptations and trials, he's rewarding you at the end. Now just pause and think about that for a moment. This generous God who's given you everything you need for life and godliness, there is no tool in his toolbox that hasn't been made available to the kids. Nothing is off limits from the Lord. Having given you every single thing you need, he then promises a reward. I was thinking about this. I thought, that's ridiculous. My son-in-law is interested in auto racing. I thought of it like this. Think of a sponsor sort of giving you the best car, the fastest car on the planet. I was traveling in the last couple weeks and I pulled up to a coffee store. I knew I was at the wrong store when the car that pulled up to ne next to me was a yellow Lamborghini SUV which my mom thought it was a taxi because it was yellow. <laughs> Said, Mom, in this town, the taxis are yellow Lamborghini SUVs. Now think of the fastest car. The sponsor gives you the, it's all souped up, all the most modern space-age technology. But not only that, you've been equipped with the best trainers from around the world. You have all the skills that you need. You've been given the strategies for racing and the physical fitness. You've gone through intense preparations, all fully paid for and provided for. So the fastest car on the track, all the preparation that you need, and the most and the best prepared skills to be the first one across the finish line. And when you finally win, you get to keep the money. I mean, that's ridiculous. Before I leave this first point, I want to pause to consider why it's so important, this powerful framework in your battle against sin is the goodness and the grace of God. I think one reason we need to see how important this framework is is because this phrase, God provides 
what God requires. Now that's, that's the Christian God. That's not any other religion. All the other religions of the world is about you climbing the ladder to God and hopefully you make it at least halfway. And maybe if he's in a good mood, he'll raise you up a couple rungs and then you know we'll just see what happens when the dice get rolled in eternity. But in this faith, with James's God, God comes down the ladder. He provides what you require to do what you need to do. In placing you sovereignly in a negative world, you might be tempted to think that God has abandoned you. God, how can I live for you in such a hostile environment? But He's given you faith. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has made the impossible possible by sending His Son to die on the cross for your sins. This is the Gospel. And it blows your mind when you hear it for the first time. And those who've heard it never get tired of being reminded that God's grace is sufficient. I think this blows a little bit of the stereotype of James being the Proverbs of the New Testament. such a practical book. It tells me everything I need to do. It does. It's quite practical. But James is a preacher of grace. So in the midst of all of James' tough, hard-hitting, straight-shooting advice, there is a deep, resonating heartbeat of God's grace that says everything that you are required to do, I have provided in the gospel. God provides what he requires. And so a second implication of this first point is that your battle against sin is against a defeated foe. If the framework in your struggle against sin is the goodness of God, you know that your enemy can only go so far. And even if he takes your life, he can't touch your soul. There is a Job-like hedge that surrounds every single believer in Christ, man, woman, boy, and girl. And God says, that one is mine. You cannot touch him. And if you do, only as far as I permit it. This tied in with the previous observation. You can go into the battle with confidence because your provider God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. All you need to do is ask in faith. And I mentioned this already, but you need to reflect on the amazing quality that God's reward is not deserved as ordinary human awards are deserved. God's rewards are decorations and laurels and badges of honor are the very things that he himself has accomplished in your life. Augustine said that God is pleased to crown his gifts with his blessing. There's a life motto. So even if you're in the midst of people who insist, insist on giving you credit, you can remember purely by the grace of God. So the first strategy in your battle against sin and knowing your enemy is to know the powerful framework of the goodness and generosity of God in the midst of the fight. My second point then is related. The origin of your fight against sin and the hardships it creates are not from God. 
They're human. The origin of your struggle is not God. It's from within your own self. If you don't know this powerful framework, which is my first point, you're going to be tempted to forget or assume in this second point that my problems have come from God or the, the, the world around me, my parents, my, my employer, my gravity. No. That's not who God is. It's far too easy for us to quickly and easily misunderstand where sin, trial, and troubles come from. You're tempted to think that God is tempting or testing you, that God is against you in some malicious and malevolent manner. But these things aren't from God. They're from us. See, the world that God made is good and holy and true and perfect. We're not living in that world anymore. We've, we've ruined that world and we're living in the world we have made. Just look at the headlines. James explains this or makes this point in verse 13 of our text. Let no one say, is how he starts. This is my version of James. I know what you're thinking. And all this hardship, it's God's fault. And James goes, not so fast. I don't want to hear any of you say this. Let no one say. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now there's a, a deep dynamic here. We don't have time to get into it this morning from the pulpit, but the word for tempt and the word for test in James is the same word. And because they're the same word, we're forced to, to consider what it means. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tested by God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. The negative connotation, though, makes it clear that a different word is called for because the character of the one that James is describing is completely impossible and illogical with God. He says that it is impossible for God to be tempted and it's illogical for God to tempt others. It's contrary to his character or nature. That's why it's impossible it's irrational or illogical because God doesn't tempt or test people. That's just not his way. It is only a temptation because of what's in your heart, not of what's in God's heart. Here's what's in God's heart. This is quoting the Puritan Thomas Brooks. In God's heart is the promise that you are his by purchase and his by conquest, that you are his by donation and his by election that you are his by covenant and his by divine marriage, that you are wholly his, particularly his, universally his, permanently and eternally his. What's in God's heart is that he is your head and you are his body. He is your husband and you are his bride. He is your redeemer. You are the redeemed. 
He is your Savior, and you are the rescued one. I am my beloved, and my beloved's in mine, and his banner over me is love. This is the heart of God that as Psalm 84 verse 11 says, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly. If God will withhold no good thing, why on earth would he tempt you? It's impossible and it's illogical. Whatever trouble you're in at the moment, whatever your most current crisis is not a result of God's failure or God's sin or God's mistake or God's indifference or God's anger. It's from somewhere else. The failure comes from your sin. His goodness remains. From within your own heart, when when you take your gaze off of God and His glory, when you fail to trust God and you struggle to accept that God's plans and purposes of your life are secure no matter what you're going through. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. Think of it. Yes and amen. I love the devotion by Spurgeon. It's called the checkbook of the bank of faith. Anybody used this before? In it, Spurgeon rehearses just page after page of the promises of God, the checkbook. Well, you probably don't know what a checkbook is, but when I was learning to take care of my money, there was these paper things that you actually signed and handed to someone. Well, the checkbook of the Bank of Faith is essentially it's perforated checks that are pre-signed, unlimited amounts for all that you need. I think the problem is that we misunderstand the human origins of our fight against sin. But before I leave the second point, I want to address a couple of problems that people have when they think about this related to the problem of evil. First of all, saying that God is, the one, is not the one testing you doesn't mean that God has stopped being in control or somehow evil in the world is an independent operator kind of on par with God. The circumstances of your life are firmly within the Father's grasp. Sin finds its origin in the human heart and the world we made, as we see. Yet, God is not surprised by it. He is not limited by it. Nor is He restrained. Though He is not the author of sin, He is sovereign over sin. You say, preacher, I don't get that. Good. Believe it. The mystery is profound and the greatest philosophers and theologians from time immemorial have been eluded by its solution. But it is the uninterrupted testimony of the scriptures from the first to the last page. We see a sovereign God free from all evil lovingly and purposefully directing the affairs of this world and our lives for his glory and our good. Think of Joseph, maybe the best example I could think of in the whole Bible, other than Jesus himself. 
After all he went through at the hands of his brothers, he was neither bitter nor resentful. Take note. But he said this, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Over and over again, we see similar stories in the scriptures and the greatest and humblest saints will testify that the devices and plots of schemes of sinful men are from men. And while you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. So Paul says, to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. But I need to also add another area of confusion. Saying that God is in control of the situation and brings about his glory and your good doesn't mean that it's easy. There's no such thing as what I call bumper sticker Christianity. I don't care if you have bumper stickers, but hear me out. You can't just put a sticker on it and make the pain go away. Telling you that your problems come from sin, either yours or others, or sin in the world, doesn't make it easy, and it certainly doesn't make it fun, and it doesn't make it happy. The fight is not an illusion. It is an figment of your imagination. You can't just pray this stuff away. You can't spend an hour on your knees and rise, and all of a sudden your problems are gone. So you can't stick a Bible verse on it, is my point. Trials are hard. You're not crazy. Yes, it feels like you're about to die. And you might indeed be about to die. The difficulty or the struggle while not originating in God is not beyond His control, however. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you can bear is what Paul promises. So in the midst of the pain, we need to do two things which are hard to do at the same time. Even mature followers of Jesus struggle. Believe that God's in control and accept the reality of the pain and the hardship. You see, he aims at your full and blessed maturity. Nothing short of life, the crown of life awaits you. And in his mysterious and sovereign design, those dark clouds of providence hold a blessing that you will soon discover, but not yet. So Jesus, when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, doesn't mean it's always easy and light. But he means in contrast to the alternative of a man-centered, world-centered, dehumanizing, self-emptying, crushing, destroying, bad news gospel, Jesus' burden by comparison is light. Well, we're learning about our battle against sin, and so far we've seen that it exists or takes place within a powerful framework and that it's important that you not misunderstand the origin of sin. It's from humans and not from God. 
My final point is to consider the, act, consider the actual nature of the enemy. I'm calling this its destructive cycle. So in battling or fighting against sin, you need to know the destructive cycle of sin. Like the cycle of an engine, you need to have at least a basic understanding of how sin works so you can effectively fight against it. In the last two verses of our text, verses 14 and 15, give us a picture of that. First of all, it seems to start innocently with desire. And I say innocently because it says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. These are hunting terms. The lure is a hook that's covered with food. <sighs> Looks good, right? Till you bite down on it. It seems innocent enough. Enticement is like coaxing an animal into a trap with sounds or colors. These are hunting words. Luring and enticing. It has a deceptive or an innocent start. Our desires seem innocent enough, but they're not. These aren't neutral desires. These are deceptively innocent desires. And once they take hold, we have a, a birth metaphor. Desire when it is conceived. It's a graphic picture of a woman giving birth, not to a beautiful child, but to a horrible child, sin. So there's something about the deceptive beginning that takes, a, I'm calling it a greedy advance. Sin takes and takes and takes some more. You didn't think that by playing with this deceptively, innocently deceptive desire that it was going to produce a, a horrible, deformed child called sin. We never planned to go that far. But it did. It's greedy. And just as soon as you think you've made the last payment, there's another to be made. So third, there's an awful end. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown and mature, this is anti-maturity from God's perspective because the end of sin is death. It's an awful end. Before I conclude this morning, I want to give a practical visualization or an illustration of a specific sin cycle that is relevant because it's extremely destructive in our day and age, and that's the cycle of sex addiction. I have actually prepared a, a slide to illustrate this for you this morning. It's from a book called Out of the Shadows. Psychologist uh, Patrick Carnes talks about how when addicts move from healthy relationships to sexual compulsion, their internal processes form an addictive system. This addictive system kindly mirrors verses 14 and 15 of our text. And it's interesting how the findings of secular psychology, I think, I think Carnes may ac actually be a Christian. It's interesting how sometimes the findings of, of science give such an endorsement or affirmation of Scripture's teachings. Carnes explains the cycle of an addict 
see if you can relate to this life cycle. There's three points here. First, the addictive system starts with a belief system containing faulty assumptions, myths, and values that support a person's impaired thinking. Second, the resulting delusional thought processes insulate the addiction cycle from reality and creates a four-phase cycle which can take over a person's life. And finally, negative consequences from the unmanageability confirm the faulty beliefs which hold that the addict is a bad person who is unlovable and other such things. This effectively revalidates the initial faulty beliefs. And the cycle continues. And he actually diagrams it. I put the diagram in your notes, but let's see the diagram here. Think of how James 14 and 15 somewhat matches the cycle. He mentions your desires that entice you and drag you away. This is good for me. I need this. I've been deprived. I deserve this. I know what's best for myself. All faulty religious beliefs that each and every one of you have fallen for at some point in your life. This is truly impaired thinking from a biblical perspective. These are not neutral thoughts. This is a broken heart and a broken mind. It's from within your own fallen nature that these thoughts arise. And then once you begin to engage in sinful actions, James 1.14 says that these desires give birth to sin. Once sin is a present reality in your way that goes just beyond sinful thinking and desires, I think you move into that lower cycle in some way, shape, or form. I think this meshes well with what Carnes calls preoccupation, ritualization, sexual compulsivity in the second circle. But because sin is what it is, it always produces a negative outcome, and Carnes calls this despair. James calls it death. We can recognize that James may be referring to an ultimate eschatological death. This is death in the judgment. You stand before God and you hold up your filthy rags of righteousness and he says, that won't cut it. That sort of death. That's what sin's after. But I think it's not a bad implication to read the death that James is referring to as something like small or proximate deaths on a daily basis. Tiny little murders that you commit or are committed against you. Pieces of your heart snipped and cut away. As God withdraws His gracious presence from you for a moment so that you can taste and see that life without God is horrible. It's like death. And in His withdrawings, He is showing us grace and mercy as a, as a, as a divine gesture to break the cycle of sin. To break it. So I like this as a vivid concluding illustration of this morning's message. Quite specific, may not relate to every one of you, but I assure you, if you're not a sex addict, you are married to one, one of your children is, your parent might be, 
certainly a friend. And so at the very least, you need to understand this so that you can be helpful to people who struggle. And if it's not sex, it's something else, isn't it? In conclusion, we've learned this morning that James provides incredible resources to fight against sin. How can we apply this as we leave together this morning? One, I want to encourage you, it's a battle. So if you haven't enlisted, you're already a casualty. James is calling you to join the battle. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that you either must be killing sin or it is killing you. What this means is joining the battle and choosing a side is not really an option. You must join the battle. Secondly, as we leave this morning, we need to do a better job as a community at fighting with confidence. That's that frame of the goodness of God that I was talking about. After all, we fight a defeated foe. We serve a gracious God. The gospel is not bad news. The gospel is good news. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead, declaring victory over the enemy, and He's reigning from the top of the mountain, pouring out blessing upon blessing. We need to fight with confidence. And thirdly, I get this from a coffee mug that we have in our kitchen. You need to make sure you're in a squad. Christianity, following Jesus, is not an individual sport. Some battles you have to fight on your own. But you fight no battle as a Christian completely alone. The triune God is with you. But we need God with skin on a brother and sister in Christ. We need a community. And if you're looking for the perfect church, I'm sorry. This isn't it. And even if it were the minute you joined, well, <laughs> that would ruin it, wouldn't it? Church, an official organized body of believers led by Leaders who have been commissioned to the task of giving you the gospel. Church, unofficial gatherings of Christians here and there. Small groups, clusters, squads, like I said. People who have similar life interests, age and stage commonalities who can help each other stand strong in the heat of battle. You are in a battle, my friends. And it isn't easy. Some of you have fallen down or struggling. Your plans aren't working out like you thought they would. I mentioned Sun Tzu at the beginning. There's another great military philosopher I'll end with, Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Some of you have been hit pretty hard. And you need God's grace. You need the Lord and His goodness in order to get back in the battle. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again, is what Scripture says. I want to close with some words of a great hymn that speaks of this battle. We lift up as our shield in God's name the strong name of the Trinity. By invocation of the same, the three in one, and one in three, 
our rock and tower, God of light, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. We claim the name of grace and might. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. By faith we claim His grace today, the power of God to hold and lead, His eye to watch, His might to stay, His ear to hearken to our need. The wisdom of our God to teach, His hand to guide, His shield to ward. The word of God to give us speech, His heavenly host to be our guard. Let's pray. Father, this is a battle and we have much work to do individually and as families and as a church. Certainly in South Jersey and Christians across the country and around the world are with us. So we are encouraged that every tribe, tongue, and nation where your church is present singing songs of the Lamb like this one I've just read. And I pray that no one would leave this morning without renewing his or her faith in the Lord or believing for the first time that I need not fight alone. There is a God who loves me and has fully provided Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.